Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming on Power Talk, please go to our website, download our free app to your smartphone, and stream all of our live local programming, including the Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And without further ado, I want to bring back a cat who we've been connecting the last couple of weeks. It's been very enlightening for me. And, um, serendipity reigns supreme because uh i didn't necessarily know exactly what angle to take with my guest but he was able to guide me in that direction very subtly last week um so let's hit david lindley welcome back to the jake feinberg show thanks jake thanks so much you know i um i i want to talk to you a little bit about just in in your mind do you is there longevity in music for an artist anymore in the rock and roll vein in the sense that uh yeah just i mean just i want you to riff on that is there longevity anymore um yeah still is how does it how is it different than than i mean when i look at you guys you specifically just taking you you start your career you have a label um they believe in you, they dig you, and then yeah. you move on, you make collaborations with people, you make records, your name's on the back, you're an accompanist, you become a studio shark, studio scene's thriving. Eventually, yeah. we just open with, uh, you know, you and El Rayo X. Uh, I, I mean, am. it continues on and on and on, but if you can unpack why longevity for a younger cat coming out today is still in music that doesn't have a reputation, please please explain. Uh. It depends on uh, how hard you're driven, you know, how hard you drive yourself, and 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 how how much you want to get your music out and and uh, overcome obstacles, lots of obstacles, you know. And uh, um, it's different now than it was, way different because you don't have the record company thing anymore. You don't have that, but there's but there's a lot of other things. It, it's kind of a self-restructuring organism, you know. As th- certain parts of it disappear, others appear. You know, you have you can get your stuff out on YouTube. You can, uh, you know, people, you know, hear what you're doing. They go, oh, like that. Let's let's do that, and and. Uh, and then you do make a CD, and then you, or whatever, you do some stuff on downloading, or, or you do live streaming concerts. Or you, you, there's all kinds of stuff. The competition now is is way huger. It's it's just it's it's like a hundredfold now because everybody has access to all that. Right. And it's not the you know the record company presents that kind of thing that was a that was a pretty limited thing because not everybody got record contracts and you know then there was the underground stuff that went on in spite of all the the record company um control of everything and then you know like the punk movement and the grunge can you talk this is where exactly can you where did punk emanate from was it Oh um, man! I mean, in, in, as best you can, because I, I mean, there is this sort of running uh, intersection between 
you use the word obstacles and this self, yeah, this yeah. relentless self-promotion, none of this you had to worry about. You just worried about creating music. Yeah. Okay, so where did punk... That's very, really accurate, yeah. Can, it did, was punk a reaction to sort of the... I don't know. It's just not my, my bag. I, it, was it a reaction to the death of rock and roll? I, I just would like you to talk about that. Uh, it, it was uh, just part of a cyclical thing, you know, the, um, you know, teeter-totter, pendulum kind of thing. You had, um, you know, people neatly packaged and, and, and promoted and, and managers and, and uh, you know, that whole world and, and, and getting on TV, getting on MTV and doing all, all this, this stuff, the big machine, you know, the punk movement was, went so far as to, we're not going to learn to play too well, you know, <laughs> we, you know, fuck you guys. We're not going to learn to play that well. And, and, but, and, and we got something to say, here it is, you know, you better listen. and you had this but and it was another scene too because it was you know LA was just insanity you know and it it was you know the dead Kennedys and Black Flag and all all these places where people went and it was an alternative to to uh, you know the other thing to what they viewed as corporate rock, and, and even though it wasn't quite, it wasn't whole-hearted participation in in the corporate entity. You know, a, a lot of people, a lot of my friends who were, they just wrote songs. They just prolific songwriting stuff, and let's play someplace, and let's go out and do a, do all this stuff. That's what they did, and that's what that's what I did too. I just I did everything. You know, I, I, I kind of, uh, you know, was part of that whole thing, and it, it was very well timed because I was right in the middle of it, and all these opportunities where you turn around and something's happening that you can do, if you want to, if you if you can do that kind of thing, you know, studio stuff, you know, some things I couldn't do because I couldn't sight read for for a slide guitar and and. Uh, you know that kind of stuff. So, and that's what everybody had me playing, or or mandolin, or whatever it was. Um, you know, there's certain things I could do, and I could okay, okay, that's the studio thing. Okay, I'm gonna make a record and see if you know. Jackson got me a deal, you know, with with Electric Asylum and and uh, and produced the first album, and, and uh, you know, did that. Okay, there's that. There's the recording thing, and now you got you've got a, this blue album. Which really turned out well, and uh, and then then there's the live thing. I can go play live with El Rio X. You know, I remember when it first started off, it was that we did stuff differently. We did reggae and we did uh, you know semi norteño music and 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 this other stuff. You know, it had kind of Middle Eastern roots and and blues. Stuff, all, all these different things, uh, you know, R and B uh, tunes done, kind of ska, uh, reggae, 
style and you know in the reggae tradition of taking uh, you know stuff off the American radio and then reggifying it you know it was a big thing so I, I was part of of uh, when I lived in England for the, those three years I, I, I saw that happen I saw tunes you know country western tunes and old rock and roll tunes taken by reggae bands and and have a version of it you know and ska the big ska skinhead thing was going full blast in England at the time so I took all those influences came back and after I I played with Terry Reed and came back and and uh, you know thinking about that writing stuff and and then and I played with Jackson and that was a whole other thing too and that was so well, let me just yeah. let me just say, you know, because you're 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 dropping serious knowledge. I, I just want to go back to this. The, the, there was an anti corporate backlash to the rock music. Yes. Explain because that corporate. I could be wrong, but a lot of classic bands today would. I mean, the ones we think of, uh, Bruce Springsteen or The Doors or uh, Joni Mitchell. A lot of them did not have a hit record right off the bat. It took millions of dollars for the record company to invest in these artists, oh, yeah. and, and they cultivated them. Jackson, I don't know when he, maybe the same way, but um, it. I got the impression that the bean counters were like, well, I don't necessarily understand what these cats are doing, but they're making us money, so we're just going to stay out of their way. But then, yeah. by the, by this corporate rock, what do you mean by that? And 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 then because what you were talking about with the punk movement was, we're not really that technically great, but we're playing with heart. I mean, were yeah. they taking the were they taking the humanity out of the music to make a buck? What does that mean? No, no, it was a, it was a uh, it was a structure that you became part of. It, it wasn't. Can you explain was, the structure how you how you got into yeah, it? And, you could yeah, you would. Uh, if a record company was interested in you, they would sign you, and you'd become part of their roster of artists, and you and you would release uh, albums on their label, and then you'd have a manager who would coordinate all the stuff, and the the manager and the record company would coordinate promotional things, and and you know the the artist and the manager would take advantage of of everything that the record company could do for them. And then um, you'd go out and you play these gigs, and you'd you, you know you get a video, you'd do a make a video, and and in those days that was a big thing too. And they had to have me doing that. So I said, make a video, oh, oh, it better be good. I mean, okay, but 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 uh, this is interesting because I, I, MTV didn't really hit the scene till the early '80s. I'm sort of just in the '70s where it's like, they, uh, okay, you yeah. you know what I'm getting at is like this. When did because isn't that really when punk started? Was the late seventies? You know, I'm not really sure. I'm not really. I just sure. remember I Garcia talking. I remember Garcia being interviewed uh, in the late seventies, and I forget the band he was talking about. Yeah. Uh, but he said, you know, I don't like. He's like, I don't necessarily like the music, but I love their heart. You know, it was authentic. Yeah. As a yeah. so. Before the video, before MTV, did you? Were, where was the, where was the structure? How did the structure entangle or inhibit true artistry, if at all? Um, it, it would help it too, you know. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it would it would 
take certain things out of the picture that you didn't have to worry about anymore. You know, self-promotion. Like what? What was the, yeah, that's... Self-promotion. Yeah. It, uh, now they handle that. You know, you didn't have to go, go around and play all these, these uh, you know, open mic things and, you know, with the bands. So played a bunch of those things. Uh, you didn't have to go do that because they everything would be organized and you had a booking agent. So you had your manager, the booking agent, and the record company. And they all worked together. And they and one of the reasons that that, that particular uh, structure worked is that y- you had time to write songs and and practice and, and get better and you know and all that other stuff was working at the same time. So you had uh, it was a big it was an organism you know that that. Uh, worked on all that and when the punk movement came along it was kind of fuck that you know we're just we're going to play music it's it'll be good it'll be, you know and then yeah these guys started getting their own record companies which was and for a long time it was a production company okay you signed to a production company and the production company signs to the record company because the record companies were afraid of these guys you know so I can remember you know what happened to uh, you know you know this is an independent record company oh well it's not actually it's a it's a production company that has a label or has a name and it's it's like you know bluefish records or whatever it is um, you get this you know, distributed by Warner Brothers or distributed by by uh, Columbia, Sony, or you know, A and M or whatever it is, and and it became this other thing, which then became more powerful, and then people started picking up on it because they liked it. You know, it's very tribal stuff. It's us and them kind of thing. You know, oh, we don't play that stuff. That's too. That's like. That's too syrupy, you know. You don't want to sing. You don't want to sing songs about that stuff. There's more important things than that, you know. And it's it's the, you know, it, it's been going on for a long time, ever since you know recorded music. There's been movements, and there's been tribes, and there's been country western music as opposed to pop music, as opposed to rock and roll. Oh no, rock and roll. Oh no, that's black people's music, and white people are playing it. Oh no, what do we do about this? And it's getting really popular. So you had all this stuff going on all the way from the beginning, and that the transitions from one tribe's music to another tribe's music. Who who is popular now? Which tribe is popular? You know, what is the most interesting stuff? What's the most musical stuff? People want to, you know, they they want to feel something. You know, they, they want to, you know, jump up and down. They want to dance. They want to do whatever they want. Disco. Mm-hmm. You know, where did that come from? You know, there it is. Well, it's a whole scene. Well, that, I mean, to me, it was like, that's the beginning to me of when, a musician all of a sudden it became it was their gift to the world as opposed to an actual profession because club owners said well instead of hiring a quartet 
we'll just or a quintet we'll just bring in someone to spin records or you know play glory yeah. play gloria gainer all night and so right. you know it's yeah. like but i mean can you talk about a time with jackson or cooter or, or when you didn't have the obstacles of self-promotion and you were able to specifically work out something in the studio that took a while and it turned into something really special because it was authentic yeah uh it depends on um yeah who it was it could take any example but i'm talking before your solo career uh when things had changed but really before when you guys had i mean i just interviewed dave bargeron from the from blood sweat and tears he literally said that rca would set up uh you know in, in new york this is on the east coast but they'd set up a the recording studio there'd be couches and tables and you know you know probably some nice fresh powder and uh, I'm just saying, you camp out there. For Al Pacino was invited. No, I mean yeah, the whole nine yards. You know, it was like you know, it was, the, it was the finest Persian. You know, and it's like, or it was, yeah. the, it was the finest uh, whatever. I'm sorry, Cuban. What you know, it's like the point yeah. is that that you camped out there for a month, and you. Oh, yeah. And so, can you talk about how though you and you had nothing to worry about other than not about technical facility but being able to touch hearts is there something you can is there an, is there an example oh, of that there is uh you get into a certain frame of mind which is the frame of mind that covers all of that you know i want something that i like something that's really musical something that people people would like to and it depend and the degrees of uh each one of those ingredients would change every once in a while. Let's see. Well, should I, change? I should make this a little bit more up tempo because then it'll it'll work in with the other tunes. And it's, we got too many medium tempo songs and stuff like that. And then you would you're working on an overall result, you know. So, uh, and you could do that because there's a lot of times when record companies that you could get a budget that was just endless, you know. And, endless, um, endless. Yeah, endless, and none yeah. of it, and none of it was. I mean, it wasn't like, oh my, God, you know, Lindley's going to have to play the fiddle parts. He's going to have to go on the street and put up signs. He's going to have to go to rate. You didn't have to do any promotion, and yet you got these budgets to just make music. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And they and and the record companies invested in you. You know, that, that was the era of huge budgets, and and you know Fleetwood Mac would would go in the studio and they would, you know, use a whole lot of studio time, and and a lot of people that I worked with, they would do <clears throat> things at different rates. It depend on who it was and how how you know bad they wanted to hear the end result or to hear a, per, a really great perfect version of of the concept of the song you know so we'd record it until it was good till it it did that and it was all always the songwriter was the was the person to uh to say let's go here let's put this on here and we'll, we'll do that you know especially when i was working with jackson jackson just had everything um how he wanted it to to sound and then if if you came up with something better than that went on there. So, and it was really an advantage to to be able to work with people like that 
at Crosby and Nash, went in the studio there. Uh, those uh, Graham, I think it was Graham's studio, Graham Nash's studio. Mm-hmm. So uh, the budget and stuff, there, that part of it was kind of covered, you know. I, I don't, I'm not absolutely sure what, uh, how all that worked out, but um, you played it until you got it, you know. Right, and go. I just, so I mean, fast forwarding to today, you talked about, so you talked so articulately about music still going on. It's a different color now, different colors, and then also, yeah, uh, you know, you know. So, but it, what, it, what's popular? Pop music, commercial is, uh, you know, people are playing like a drum machine, you know, and this is just the time that we're living in. But, um, yeah. uh, can you talk about when you look at music, the trajectory of music, the fact that we're really in this period where, I mean. James Taylor, Jackson, Cooter, Dylan. Yeah. These were authentic cats. I mean, yeah, you, absolutely. you know, I mean, like, uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, what do you say about the longevity of rock and roll or music in general when all of a sudden, those guys were, first of all, the guys I just mentioned, they were all stars. Absolutely. You know, Jack, yeah. okay. they were stars. They were pop stars, okay? Absolutely. And they were authentic yeah. musicians. And now you have cats, like, Take away the instrumentalists, just you have pop stars who aren't yeah. even talented. It's that technology you can fix it. How did I sound? Yeah. Terrible. Well, we'll fix yeah. it. We'll fix it. You, you, you know, you're beautiful. You got 30, 30 million Twitter followers. Let's do it. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. I mean, how, how? So I go back to the longevity <laughs> thing. I mean, what? Yeah. How, can you just riff on that? Because, I mean, that to me is there was no. I mean, yeah, you could splice stuff. You listen to. Um, you know, Blue Mitchell records and Freddie Robinson takes the same exact solo twice in a row because they had a splice, you know, something got effed up. But the point is, it wasn't that somebody sucked, that they had no talent and they're being promoted yeah. as, a, as a star. Yeah. You know, so I mean, just riff on that. I mean, how did we get to this point? And how, and, and how, how, really, how do you, how do you, how can you have longevity with lack of authenticity in the actual artists themselves? It's, it's hype and promotion and, and marketing and and uh, you know that's become a very it's become more important part of the mix now you know and and the advent of the of the pitch corrector for for vocals that was a huge huge thing it explain explain why explain why it's because what happens is that you can sing uh, a vocal that's not in tune uh, and you, you know, you may not be a good singer, uh, and and it's really hard to get a vocal that goes all the way through that's in tune and, and is, is really good and all that. You put it through the box. For a while, it was called the share box because she used it a lot and and really actually used it like an instrument and and messed with the repeat and all that stuff. And and she she got some pretty interesting stuff out of it. But the basic purpose of the box was to make it so that you could get perfect vocals or you could you know you can take other instruments and 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 tune those things up and so that had a lot to do with it so uh you know light bulbs went off in people's heads producers heads record companies heads and you know and they said oh we can do this we'll get somebody who who is uh, you know has 
charisma of some sort and will we'll make it so that they they sound really good and they can do it with a yeah you know oh uh, country music you know 99.9 percent of all vocals are run through a vocal or a pitch corrector there's all kinds of different models of that thing you know so you and and they use it and, it, and you can't tell the difference a lot of the time you know so so that had a big influence on it and the rest of it is like corporate kind of organization which is you know and people they like it they like the end result they like what what came out of it they like the, the person is really interesting and and you know has a has a good presence on stage and they do that and a lot of dancing and, and you know there was an expression uh, in the 70s was beware of <clears throat> those without instruments yeah it was like and what did that mean well it was just like you know can you play can you play an instrument or or is it just you know is this like uh you know a facade or you know are you getting away with something or you know it has nothing to do with lead singers but a lot of it was you know like the boy bands you know that didn't play right yeah that was it. Uh, and then in modern day, you get, you know, rap artists like, you know, Millie Vanilli, you know, they're lip syncing the words. <laughs> um, there was that, too. That, too. I mean, but it was this idea of the share box. When did that, did she take flack for that amongst, were you under, like, under your, kind of just like, what the heck is this? I mean, I mean what I'm trying to get at is, like, this is an instrumental example, but, I, you know, Spino David Spinoza, um, yeah. flubbed that solo on Right Place, Wrong Time, Dr. John, and yeah. Arif Martin and those cats were like, no, that's what we want, we're good. And, you know, it was clearly a flub, and it's still there today, but it made yeah. the tune, and they liked that funky thing. Yeah. When you go back, I mean, Jackson Brown, he couldn't, there was, you couldn't pitch correct that, his voice. I mean, it was a, he had an amazing voice, but it had to be, yeah. it had to be done the right way. And yeah, I guess all I'm trying to say is, can you talk about younger, any cats that you know right now, younger cats who, how they're dealing with the juggling act of oh, self-promotion, yeah. uh, uh, relentless self-promotion, no budget, no record company, no touring circuit. And yeah. I mean, you can say that, yeah, how do you carve out an idea? Who Tell me some younger examples to, to tell me that rock and roll is the longevity of of individuality in rock and roll is not dead, if you have any. Wow. Well, I know uh, I run into a lot of people who, you know, like opening acts and people when I play places, there, there's a lot of people who who are kind of in that boat, you know, and they, they're doing the self-promoting thing, putting it on YouTube, or, or not doing another way of, of promoting their stuff. And one guy in particular is a bottleneck guitar player who is, who is just amazing. So I, I, I did some gigs with him already. And uh, What's his name? Oh... Uh, I'll remember in a minute. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. So what I mean, like, okay, so, so talk about him and, 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 and how he's doing it and, and getting ahead. Um, there's, you know, he's really tenacious going after everything. Uh, and he's making his own CDs and, and sending them around. And uh, yeah, it's it's working pretty well. I mean, he's going to get seen and and heard, and and I, I'm trying to get him on some uh, Canadian festivals, you know, blues festivals and stuff like that. He's just totally unique style, a great singer and a great bottleneck player. That that there's nobody that he plays like. He kind of sounds like, uh, you know, Cooter in some senses. He's got the same kind of great vibrato bottleneck thing. Mm-hmm. And he, then he's got this fabulous voice. So he, he's doing a lot of um, gigs wherever he can. So I, I, I'm trying to help him out a little bit. No, I mean, I'd like you to talk about how Jackson, how seamless it was for Jackson because here you are you're doing what Jackson did for you and what people have done before that where, yes you know Electra yeah. Asylum <laughs> and you're trying to l- lend a hand and say let's get this cat on some blues festival so he can be seen yes. more can yeah. you just talk about I mean were you how seamless the transition was from being the studio shark and this guy who was you know you were with Jackson and all these cats and how Jackson how easy it was for him to get you a record deal oh yeah yeah, no problem. They liked it anyway. Electrosilum. Just take even even if it, it, just I take take anyway. us just take me through that entire like from when you with Jackson and then how easy it if it was easy the steps that it took for you to actually get because at that time uh, in the early or the late seventies early I mean you still the learn the listening mediums were LPs and analog cassette. You That's still right. you still had regional radio to a degree, so oh, yeah. Lindley and we didn't have the internet or full interconnection. So Lindley was your individuality came to life. But I just want to know how. I mean, today it's like, oh, Lindley, you know, he he's he's a, he's a freak. He doesn't look a certain way. He he doesn't <laughs> like he doesn't fit the corporate model. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, they kind of. Uh, for a while, they didn't really know what to do with the kind of music I played, you know. Except for Mercury Blues, they knew what that was all about. But uh, but I mean, Jackson went to them and said, "Listen, what did he say? This guy's been with me forever." He's the- I, I I'm not I'm not too sure. I I knew all the record company people, mm-hmm. the the uh, Electric Island people, because they they had been working with Jackson. We see him at gigs and everybody, and and really really cool people. Bert Stein was was wonderful uh, at that time it was uh, you know David Geffen and uh, and I knew him Hugh Jackson he come to gigs and stuff Very, really wonderful guy and uh, he would always take my phone calls I'd have questions about you know doing uh, you know what do I do you know this is the first album you know, what do you think is, is uh, what's the best approach to do, you know, to this or that aspect of it? And he, he always had advice. He was very, very helpful. That's amazing. He was the, exa- he was Geffen Records. He was the president. Oh, yeah. 
he was the president and he was taking your call, but you knew him back from the, I mean, Geffen was yeah. total hips. Yeah. You know, he was, he was out there back, but I mean, you had direct access to the president of the company. Yeah. And, and, and then it, when it was, uh, uh, Hale Milgram and, and Joe Smith and, and those guys, they liked what I did. And that that really helped. And a lot of the people in the publicity department they they were enthusiastic and they and they liked the liked what I was doing and understood what I was doing. You know, they, there was a couple of glitches where they weren't quite sure. You know, how what to call it. You know, and they and I, I remember one, uh, one friend of mine came into the walked into the studio and he said he just stood there for a minute and got everybody's attention and said. Reggae rock. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, that's good, that's good. I like that. So he says, well, you know, we, we tr- try to, uh, you know, figure out the best way to present stuff to the audience in general. And it was, uh, you know, for a while it was a little little bit difficult but i i was a working band which was a huge thing i mean i would go out on the road all the time you know and i was used to doing that because i went out on the road with jackson all the time so that was the way to do it you get you get a road crew and and uh you know uh a van you know and a, and a bobtail truck and you, you know you do all kinds of you know, there was a bus for a while. We did, you know, it, it depended uh, on how long you're out for. So, and toured Europe, went to Europe, and played uh, Germany, uh, Austria, and Switzerland a lot. Played the UK, Scandinavian countries where I got, you know, gold records and stuff. And toured all around. And uh, and the record company was 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 behind me all the way. Well, I mean, I just want to be clear. When you say behind you, they funded these tours. Yeah. Well, um, we pretty much, you know, we made money at these gigs, festivals and gigs and, and, and all kinds of, you know, venues. And, and uh, they helped out somewhat, you know. Um, but mainly it was us. You know, we rented the bus. We did all, uh, you know, schlepping around, and we had a road crew and, and uh, that we paid. And, and it's, it's just like you know a normal touring situation, with a record company being enthusiastic and helping out, and and doing, you know, radio interviews. And then I remember for one tour, one European tour, there was press day. And it was like, I don't know how many it was, like 14 journalists in a row, one after another. And I had the, the, the lady that set it all up would, would come in and, and point at her wristwatch. <laughs> Next one, yeah. Right. Yeah, she was really cool. She was great. So, so they were real helpful. Um, and then, and, and they, yeah, and then, right. And then, um, I've been waiting to ask you this question, um, and I know you still perform live, uh, but going back to when you were um, 
just coming up and you know in the six in the mid 60s and uh, yeah. The fact that you would get to, you know, see your idols and like Mingus and, and then oh, yeah. Banjo. and But I just would like you to talk a little bit about how the music in our culture, the significance of music in our culture has changed. Uh, well, it's changed on a lot of fronts. You know, the, the folk music now. Oh. Uh, they kind of think it's one thing uh, in particular, you know, the Americana kind of stuff and, and folk music, sounding folk music. But, but the real serious folk music is hip-hop, gangster rap, all that. Explain that. That is very important. Listen. That is very important. I, that doesn't even make that doesn't even make sense to me. The real folk music. Why is that the real folk music? It is because it's it comes from people that are that are making it up out of their heads. I mean, it's completely, totally different approach. Um, really relevant to to life. You know, everybody's life. Where where these guys live and, and they're, they're songs like Woody Guthrie same thing it's the same intensity it's with the same passion and, and uh, you know intent and it's coming out of their heads right it's not being yeah, it is. it's yeah, not it's being modulated by some efficiency person or saying oh no we need no 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 right this is in, this is such keep going I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off it didn't 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 attend any class for it you know what I mean <laughs> They didn't go to they didn't go to you know a class to learn how to do this stuff. They made it up. It's like uh, you know the flamencos or the you know folk musicians, folk musicians in in Turkey who who uh, got a hold of an oud. So one guy gets a hold of an oud and he and he starts playing stuff on there. And he gets really, really good, and he do, he doesn't study any of the classical stuff. He just plays it like a folk instrument, and he gets really good. So he develops this one style, you know. And then somebody over in, in Iran, they do the same thing with a with a uh, a tar, which is like a uh, sure a Persian Absolutely. banjo. Yeah, right. Yeah, tar. Yeah, and and all you know different stuff. And then down down the road a little bit in Azerbaijan, they played completely different style, and they have all this stuff in it. And what did they do? Oh, we just got together. We just got together, and we play this stuff now, and it becomes a regional style. So you had this happening all, all over the U.S. You have regional, you know, this style, and you know, uh, we do something like, uh, you know, Buzzy down the road. We, it's kind of like him, you know, but it, it's we put our own stuff in there, and, and they borrow, everybody borrows, you know, things. Oh, there's a great fiddle player. Oh, yeah, he's over, and he lives over in Kentucky. you you got to go over there. you got to look him up. You know, he, he's easy to find. Everybody knows where he is. You just go to, you know, Bear Branch. Just go to the post office in Bear Branch and ask where Nate is, you know. You do that, so people would would you know, oh, this is great stuff. Oh, oh you know, and and the, and two fiddle players that went along on the on the 
on the trip, they come back and they start playing like this guy, you know. And then you got records. You hear records and you say, oh, good, oh, this, that's what I did. I, I was a record, Tower Records. You know, I get records, Folkways records. Oh. These, these guys. Oh. The, Ralph, know, Rins G Ralph Rinsler, man. Oh, yeah. Oh. Rock Ralph. that. Oh yeah, he he did all kinds, you know, when yeah. recorded all all kinds of people, and and there there was the, you know, the Lomax family. They did a whole bunch of stuff like that, and 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 thanks to them, we we were able to hear a lot of these people. And then Ed Pearl, who is the owner of the Ashgrove in Los Angeles, he would have people come in. He would make sure that these Mississippi sharecroppers had the transportation, had a place to stay, and he paid him really well to come to the Ashgrove and play for a week. So we all went there. We sit in the audience, and we hear these guys play, and we go, oh, holy shit. Listen to this. And, and you know, it's all, all people of a certain age, you know, me and Cooter and guitar player named Al Marion was always there, Sandy Mosley, all, all these people, David Cohen, who became a fabulous studio musician, he was there, and he would play, and then we, we learned all this stuff, and we had our version of it, because we loved all that stuff, bluegrass bands, or, or blues string bands, or, or whatever, you know, jug band music, oh boy, check this shit out. This is really funky and nasty, good stuff. So let's do that. We have a jug band too. Besides the bluegrass band, we have the jug band. So every, everybody was doing that. Kind you had of a, thing. you had a jug band? No. Uh, well, kind of. It was because I mean, that, I mean, like I, I mean, this would be you. you for, I mean, because Garcia did, but also Mother. They had Mother McCree's, but I've interviewed everybody in the Questkin jug band. I'm like Lindley might have had. One. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone. Questkin, Questkin was like the the resident guru at the place called the Cat's Pajamas in Arcadia, where I played all the time. That's the first time I heard Jim Questkin. It was the no shtick. It was the no shtick shtick, right? You know. Yeah. yeah. He was getting together a jug band, and he was, you know, uh, looking around for for people, and and there were a lot of people in in the L.A. area, and especially in that area, which is the eastern part of L.A. County. There were a lot of fantastic players there you know so he he was you know there's a bunch of other there's a guy named mike mcclellan who, who was a multi-instrumentalist who was a really big influence on me i i i would go see him every time he played he played the 12 string like lead billy played the banjo like like uh, ralph stanley and and sang you know really unbelievably good multi-instrumentalist and I, I go see these guys all the time and so we we would uh, and that's it was the folk process that was if you didn't go to school you went to the club you know and you absorbed it you learned how to steal <laughs> beg borrow and steal two nickels or a dime to call me on the phone no um, yeah. um, so let me ask you about um, this idea of have we sold that? I mean, people do a lot of file sharing and downloading today. Um, yeah, they don't. Yeah. I mean, do people no longer support musicians with their pocketbooks? Uh, they still do. In what way? 
Um, I mean, I get people who who come to these gigs, you know, and they they pay to uh, you know to see the show, and then they buy a CD afterwards. It's it's a kind of an uh, an ethical thing. In fact, I have people tell me that you know I uh, I know you don't like to be recorded, uh, so I didn't bring my rig. So, I mean, I actually talk to people that, that say that kind of thing. And then there's the stealth people who, who will do it anyway, and they get off on it. Mm-hmm. You know, and they, they'll do that, and then all of a sudden you have a, you know, you have a live, you know, live at uh, Jam and Java. Uh, <laughs> right, with Vienna, some, Virginia, some, some and, Sennheiser and, 421 mics, and, you know, they, they got that. Well, the, you know, but they... Uh, or else, uh, sometimes the venue records stuff. I did. Or tape. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. let me let me rephrase the question. Uh, you, you know, your band El Rey OX, you could, yeah. you made a record, you gauged which songs were popular. There was data, uh, which which songs got radio play. Uh, yeah. uh, you wound up on tours that the record company did subsidize in some respects. Um, the point is that there was longevity. And you, yes, there okay. Was. So, what is there today for young musicians aside from, hey, just to let you know, we're playing our asses off and there's some CDs in the back? Yeah, that's kind of it. Unless they have um, uh, somebody who's interested in them and like a, like to. a sugar like a sugar daddy or something. Yeah, exactly. So where do you see, in your mind's eye, I mean, you're still creating and doing stuff, but what does the near future hold for authentic music? And, I mean, yeah, just riff on that, because this is something that we're toying around with, and, you know, a lot of the masters of authentic music are still, thankfully, here. And yet, yet the younger peeps are basically their satchels are just really weighed down where to the point where they could just flip over the gravity will take them backward. Yeah. I know. So, I mean, just, just, just talk, I mean, words of wisdom from Lindley here about the future of, of music. Well, <clears throat> if you separate it, what you're doing, the music that you're making from making it, that that's almost a necessity. You have to, concentrate more on on what you're doing and become totally immersed in making the music and make, and playing and and making it making it work the way you want it to and then you develop a following and then the following you know you have live gigs and unfortunately some of those live gigs are recorded so so uh, material becomes old before it's time because people have, have gone on YouTube and, and listened to these guys. That's what I'm saying. They don't, they don't yeah. support the musicians no. with their pop. I mean, you're right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's almost a, some, sometimes people think by recording somebody's set and then, and then putting it on YouTube, they're promoting them. Well, in a way, Yeah in a way they are doing that but what they're doing is the the, the exposure is too fast 
you know, people. It takes takes uh, some people, you know, a year to write a song, or months to write a song, and and have it be really right. And that, you know, and they go out and they play it that night, and and it's it it's on YouTube, and and it's like you know, it gets old in a month, or it gets you know, <clears throat> a million hits or whatever it is, and then yeah, and then and they make the money, you know, because they get a sponsor. Uh, you know, to, to advertise on their site, mm-hmm. do this, so it becomes the fans. Yeah, actually, somebody become, else is making making profit off the art, and it's not even the artist. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, and that's 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 an aspect of it that just pisses me off to no end. So you get that kind of thing going, and one of the differences is that you can one way to look at it is that some of the fans. It's a different breed of fan. They become predators. You know? It's like they have an insatiable appetite for stuff and they become a predator. Sometimes they don't know it and sometimes they don't give a shit. They just want to get all and everything and I, you know. Well, I mean, it's, I think I mean it's 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 probably a little bit of both. Uh, they 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 know. Oh, of course. You know, yeah. They, yeah. yeah. And different degrees of it, and then and then some people they get guilty, feeling guilty about it, and especially when they find out, you know, all oh, this these guys don't like to be recorded, so they do it anyway. Which is a uh, and I've had I've gone back and forth in emails and stuff with people like that, and uh, you know, <clears throat> one guy get really got. He really got upset because I said, oh. <laughs> I got wound up, boy. This guy just really pissed me off. And I said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jerry Garcia, you know why he died? He got taped to death. You know? All those guys out there with all all the recording equipment, all that stuff. Yeah, Jerry got taped to death. Yeah. He wasn't all that sure about how good that 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 process was. It 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 was a uh, an institution, you know. Pretty soon. Well, he. I mean, Jerry was a taper too. Yeah. I mean, he, he basically said, "What's what's the use of?" First of all, I t- I've done a couple of interviews with Dan Healy, their sound guy, and he said it's utter bullshit. Some of the guys in the band bought into the idea that if the if the cats are going to tape your shows, you're not going to make any money on the records. He said that's utter bullshit. And yeah. and Jerry said, "What's what's the use once the once the note leaves my guitar? What I I'd rather share it. What's what's the use of uh, I want to share it with people, you know, and let it yeah. be, you know. And so I and yeah, go ahead. I go ahead though. He didn't yeah, he didn't die. Yeah. He wasn't taped to death. Okay, that's no, not. And that's yeah, but that's how I went off on this guy, you know. And that really got to him. I was so glad. <laughs> <laughs> so I you know." Those guys really got into it, you know. They it, it was a it was an institution, and then it spread to to other bands, and it was a Bay Area thing, and the, and you know file sharing and stuff like that, and it became an empire. The Grateful Dead thing is totally unique. Never seen anything like that ever. But I just wanted to get to this. Well, and they eventually had to create. They eventually had to create the. Uh the tapers section because uh, yeah. it was getting too out of control. And there yeah. was, there was that idea that there were people in the band 
I don't know who they were, but they basically were, were totally convinced that they were losing profits because people were taping their shows and not paying. And, uh, you know, so, yeah. uh, Lindley, we just we just cooked through another hour here. And uh, yeah, this was more of like a philosophical discussion, but uh, <laughs> maybe we could do a Halloween edition next week. Uh, I'm not sure if you're are you getting are, are you getting how many more questions do you have? Well, on this session, we're done. Uh, I have no okay. Yeah, you know, but if you if if you want to, we we can do set four. We can get let it breathe for a little while. We, whatever you want to do. I'm just having a ball talking to you. Yeah, I because uh, it's it's bottomless pit, you know. Well, and that's from that, I, well, believe me, that's why I continue to keep doing what I'm doing. So, yeah, I mean, well, let's shoot for but next. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it if it helps out and if it's important and and it'll. You know, clear things up or, or open doors and windows. Well, you got to realize and when this. Yeah, yeah, well, this. Uh, and then here's the thing. I mean, it is all of those things. And it's also when you put something in context in the written word, other people who are equally as bogged down or confused can actually see the light. And that's yeah. why I'm doing. I mean, using new media. So, I mean, I'm being creative in my own way. I'm just trying to figure out if rock and roll is dead or not truthfully and that's no it's not so it's not so no. so anyway never dies never dies all right so so let's uh let's just plan on uh, next next time okay. next week all right that'd be good love you man take it easy love you too later on thanks man bye bye part three in the books with david lindley and we'll be back with john perry barlow on the other side of the break right after this